So John chapter 7, verses 1 through 24. And as you turn there, let us ask the Lord's blessing on the reading and preaching of His Word. O Lord our God, we thank You indeed as we have already heard in song that Your Word is a lamp unto our feet and a guide unto our paths. We ask now that You would speak to us from Your Word. We are Your servants. We ask that You would speak to us for we are listening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hear the Word of the Lord from John chapter 7, verses 1-24. through 24. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill Him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but His who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of Him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The Jews answered, or the crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. May God bless the reading of His holy word and let His church say, Amen. 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 Just like we are about to enter into our annual cycle of holidays and accompanying feasts, so too the Jewish people, a church of the Old Testament, had their own cycle of feasts that commemorated the wonderful works that God had done among them to redeem them and to save them. Feasts like the Feast of Passover. Feasts like the Feast of Unleavened Bread. 
and the Feast of Dedication, or Hanukkah. The ancient historian Josephus has remarked that among these seven feasts celebrated by the Jewish church, the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths, was their favorite. It was simply referred to by the Jews as the festival. And during this feast, Jews would gather in to Jerusalem. Jews would, would uh, even travel from great distances into Jerusalem. And as they would travel to Jerusalem, what they would do is they would build a tent for themselves. They would build a booth. They would build a tabernacle. And during the eight days of the feast, they would dwell in these tabernacles. And even the people that lived in Jerusalem, they would make a booth on the roof of their house. And this was to commemorate and remember how God provided for His people while they dwelled in tents in the wilderness. Every day during the festival, the priests would go to the pool of Siloam. He would take some water and he would travel back to the temple and he would pour out the water at the foot of the altar so that they could commemorate how God provided water for them from the rock in the desert. On the seventh day of the feast, the last and great day of the feast, there would be not only the water ceremony, but there would be a light lighting ceremony to commemorate how God revealed Himself. The glory cloud of God by a pillar of fire and a cloud by day descended upon His people and they would commemorate and remember how God dwelt among them. John 5-10 through 10 is known as the festival cycle of Jesus' ministry. Jesus would participate and do signs or give teachings during these festivals. And what He would do is He would show how these festivals pointed to Him. He would show how He was the fulfillment of these celebrations of the Jewish church. Here in John 7-8, through 8, this is a long passage of Scripture about Jesus' celebrating and observing the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. And indeed, here in this passage of Scripture, and we'll get there in good time, Jesus will declare that, he, uh, that all who are thirsty should come to Him and drink. Jesus is the water that poured out from the rock to, feed, to, to satisfy the thirst of God's people. It's also here that Jesus will stand up and declare that He is the light of the world who has come, that all may look upon Him and see. So just as God revealed Himself in His glory in the wilderness, so Jesus has come and revealed God's glory to His people. Nevertheless, these Jews who saw Jesus and heard His teaching, they misjudged Jesus. Now, we've seen this already in the Gospel of John. The misjudging of Jesus time and time again. And when we reach the end of this section of, of Scripture, at the end of chapter 8, Jesus is in the temple and the Jews will pick up stones to stone Jesus to death. Well, why did the Jews misjudge Jesus despite His clear teaching and signs? 
But they lacked faith. And they, they judged Jesus by mere outward appearances. And Jesus tells them in this passage of Scripture, in the last verse, in chapter 24, don't judge by appearances. Judge with right judgment. Judge rightly. Don't judge by outward appearances. Judge with the eyes of faith. Look at my teaching and my ministry and the signs with the eyes of faith. And you know, people still struggle with this today, don't they? Judge Jesus by appearances. And without faith, all of us will misjudge Jesus. We'll judge Him by appearances. Not for who He truly is. Not for truly why He came. And not truly from where He came from. Without faith, we will misjudge Jesus. In this passage, we're going to see three ways that people misjudge Jesus if they lack faith. First, we'll see how people misjudge the timing of Jesus. Second, we'll see how people misjudge the teaching of Jesus. And lastly, by way of alliteration, we'll see how people misjudge the transformation from Jesus. So, the timing, the teaching, and the transformation of Jesus. All preachers do it. I'm sorry. I couldn't help it. Three T's this morning. Please keep your Bibles open as we look at this passage together. And First, let's examine how without faith we will misjudge the timing of Jesus. Jesus has gone into Jerusalem and has come from Jerusalem back to Galilee and He's remained in Galilee for a time. There in Galilee, He has indeed fed the 5,000 men, probably a multitude of 20,000 people or more. His popularity is at an all-time high and people are searching for Him. They're gathering to see another sign from Jesus. But the Jews, they were seeking to kill Jesus. So Jesus had not gone yet back into Judea or back into Jerusalem because the Jews were seeking to kill Him. And as we'll soon find out, it's not because Jesus fears for His life or because Jesus is powerless to stop the Jews from killing Him. For indeed, nothing can happen to Jesus outside of the Father's timing. Everything is going to happen in Jesus' life and ministry in perfect accordance with the timing of the Father. Nevertheless, it's the time of the Feast of Booths. And so, Jesus' brothers, as we read here in verse 3, what do they tell Jesus? Leave here and go to Judea. Essentially, come with us, Jesus. It's, it's time for us to leave Galilee and to go into Jerusalem. And let's all go into Jerusalem besides Jesus, your disciples. Look at what they notice here. They don't tell Jesus Go into Jerusalem so that you can observe the feast and so that you can worship with the others. But they tell Jesus, go into Judea to the feast. Why? Notice what they tell Him. So that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. Jesus, we've seen Your signs. You have this gift of gathering a, a large multitude of people around you and People are looking at you and following you. And so Jesus' brothers tell him, you need to go and do this in Jerusalem, Jesus. And what better time for you to go and do this than at the favored feast of all the people? I mean, Galilee, 
Galilee is Smallville. Galilee is Nowheresville. It's just a, a podunk town on the north side of the sea, Jerusalem. That's the epicenter of their religious life. Jesus needed to go down into Jerusalem. I mean, if you're going to start a, a ministry among the Jewish people, Jerusalem would be the place that you would want to do that. So they're encouraging Jesus. Go up to Jerusalem. Do some of these signs. Gather, gather a large crowd and do miracle signs and wonders so that your disciples will be able to see what you're doing. And notice their logic in verse 4. Here's the logic. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you want people to know about your ministry, Jesus, if you want people to know about your teaching, if you want people to know about who you are, you're not doing a very good job of it, Jesus. You, you need to put on a display. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, they tell Him. Let everybody know who you are, Jesus. You're, you're able to do these wonderful signs and miracles. March into Jerusalem, right in the temple, in front of the high priest, and do one of them, and then everyone will believe who you are. Interestingly enough, verse 5 tells us what? His brothers didn't have faith in Jesus. His brothers didn't believe in Jesus. They had seen His signs, but they had missed the significance of His signs. They didn't understand the timing of Jesus. Jesus explains it to them in verse 6. His reply sounds a lot like His reply to His mother at the wedding in Cana in John 2, doesn't it? My time has not yet come, Jesus tells them. My time has not yet come. Jesus is indeed going to go to the feast. But He's not going to be rushed to the feast. He's not going to go to the feast upon their pretenses. They're not going to be able to thrust Jesus into the limelight. This is going to be the work of God. He's not going to do this because they say so. Jesus is going to go as the Father directs Him. And when the Father directs Him. You notice Jesus says this again. In verse 8, My time has not yet fully come. Jesus is saying is, it's not time for me to go to the feast yet. By contrast, look at what He tells His brothers. Your time is always here. You can go to the feast whenever you want. It's not significant for you. Could you imagine how offensive this would be to Jesus' brothers? And they probably did take some offense to this. Jesus is saying, my time to go to the feast is not yet, but any time is the right time for you. So go ahead and go on to Jerusalem if that's what you want to do. Well, why is that? Jesus tells them, tells them the world cannot hate you. You think like the world. You see things like the world. You judge people like the world judges. You're judging my ministry like the world judges. You're judging who I am like the world judges. You're judging my timing 
like the world judges my timing. But the world, Jesus says, hates me. Why? Well, I tell them that they're sinners. I remind them that their works are evil. I'm the one who tells them that they need to repent. So, Jesus remains in Galilee. We see that in verse 9. And His brothers go up to the feast. But in verse 10, what do we see Jesus do? He goes up to the feast too. But how does He go up to the feast in Jerusalem? What does verse 10 say? Look at your Bibles. He went also, not publicly, but in private. I wonder if you saw the news about Twitter this week. Who bought Twitter? Elon Musk bought Twitter, didn't he? For $44 billion, Elon Musk bought Twitter. And I think it was on Thursday this week that Elon Musk, he went to the Twitter headquarters and somebody was videotaping him. And Elon Musk walked into the Twitter headquarters carrying a sink, like a bathroom sink. And he posted the video on his Twitter account saying, let that sink in. There's a new sheriff in town, is what Elon Musk was saying. The way you all have been running things is not the way that I'm going to run things. And in fact, what did Elon Musk do this week? He cleaned house over there at Twitter, firing many of their top officials. It was a public statement, wasn't it, by Elon Musk? We call it a power move. It was a power grab. It was a way of Elon Musk saying, I'm the owner now and I'm going to run this the way that I want to run it. You want to let that sink in. Many people think about Jesus the same way they think about Elon Musk. Jesus, you're the king of the world. You're the sovereign over all creation. You're the Lord of all things. You have conquered death, hell, and the grave. And you've ascended up to heaven and you're seated at the right hand of the Father on your throne. And there you remain while all your enemies are being made your footstool. Why don't you, Jesus, make a public declaration, a public statement that you're the one who's in charge? Because from our vantage point, it doesn't look like you're in charge. If you're going to return one day, Jesus, and judge all the wicked and evil, all those who are sinful, if you're going to come and, and do all that, why don't you get on with it, Jesus? Because from our vantage point, it doesn't always look like you're in control. It doesn't always look like you're going to arrive at the right time. Apostle Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8-10, through 10, speaks to this, doesn't he? He lets us know that God's timing is not our timing as it regards judgment and the arrival of Jesus. For a thousand days is as... or a thousand years is as one day with the Lord and... One day for us is as a, a thousand years for the Lord. What's that mean? It means that God's not beholden to our time frame. 
We think that God is slow in fulfilling His promises. We think that Jesus is being slow in returning. But what does the Apostle Peter let us know? God's not slow. There's a perfect timing for everything. And when the time is right, Jesus will come back. Well, then why the delay? Peter tells us the delay is because God wishes none to perish, but that all may come to faith. One day the Lord Jesus will return. He will come, and it will sink in on everybody at that point in time. But until then, we wait, don't we? And we pray, come, Lord Jesus, come. And it requires us to exercise faith. And to judge Jesus rightly. For without faith, we will misjudge Jesus. Without faith, we will misjudge the timing of Jesus. Just like His brothers. But Jesus is always on time. There's a second way that people will misjudge Jesus if they lack faith. I want you to see this in this passage. Secondly, without faith, we will misjudge the teaching of Jesus. Jesus has gone now up to the feast and there's a stir about Jesus. The Jews who want to kill Him are looking for Him. We see that in verse 11. They're saying, where is He? They're searching for Jesus. And then in verse 12, the people are beginning to mutter about Jesus. It's the same word that we've seen in the previous chapter about grumble. The people who grumbled about Jesus sounded Oddly like a crying child, maybe. Wonderful to have the children here in church hearing the preaching of the Word. Here are the Jewish people. They're grumbling and muttering about Jesus. And they have divided opinions about Him. Some think that He's a good man. In verse 12, we see that. Some said He's a good man. Others said, no, He's leading people astray. But yet, they couldn't be open about their opinions regarding Jesus. Why? Look at verse 13, for fear of the Jews. Well, what would the Jews do? Well, if they thought that you were siding with Jesus, they might just put you out of the synagogue and out of the temple. They might ostracize your family from the community that you live in. And so they kept their opinions to themselves. Jesus, nevertheless, goes to the temple and begins to teach. And they are marveled by His teaching. Why? Well, they've never heard anyone teach like that. Look at verse 15. The Jews marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Teachers during Jesus' time were to study for many years with influential rabbis. They were to get their information and their learning and their training from other rabbis. And they would substantiate their teachings from the teachings of other rabbis, quoting other rabbis in their teaching. Jesus does none of this. Look at what He says. My teaching is not Mine, but His who sent Me. Jesus is not like their teachers. He receives His teaching not from other rabbis, but from whom? He receives it directly from God the Father. Not only does He do that, but look at verse 18. He doesn't speak of His own authority. He speaks, or he speaks on His own authority. 
Let's look at verse 18. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. What Jesus is saying here is that in his time and culture, if you spoke of your own authority, it was a prideful thing to do. And so what you would do is substantiate your teachings with the teachings of other rabbis that you had learned from. Jesus doesn't need to do that. Why? For He receives His teaching directly from God the Father. Well, how would they know that His teaching was from the Father? Look at verse 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. What's Jesus saying? He's saying that in order for you to understand my teaching, you have to be able to judge my teaching with the eyes of faith. You have to have ears of faith to hear and to receive my teaching. Your will has to be transformed by the Father. And if your will has been transformed by the Father, then you'll know that my teaching is from God. If you have a will to do God's will because your will has been changed, then you'll know that my teaching is from the Father. Do they have wills to receive Jesus' teaching? Look at verse 19. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. It's a rhetorical question from Jesus. You could restate it as, surely Moses has given you the law. He had given them the law. And yet, they were all lawbreakers. And they didn't understand Jesus' teaching. How many of you know what a phoropter is? You think I made the word up? I didn't. Many of you know exactly what a phoropter is because you're wearing glasses. When you go to the doctor's office, you sit in the chair and there's this device on a swing arm and the ophthalmologist swings the phoropter right around in front of your face and you look through these lenses at the wall in front of you and there's letters up there and if you're like me, when they first put that device up to your face, you can't read the letters, can you Rob? No. So then the doctor begins to change the lenses inside the phoropter, and you get asked all these questions. Better at one, better at two. Better at three, or better at four. In Rob's case, better at 85, or better at 86. By the time you arrive at the end, that's your prescription. That's, that's what you need. That's the corrective lenses that you need. The teaching of Jesus is like a phoropter for us to look on to the work of God and Scripture and the law. When we look through Jesus at the law, we understand that it all points to Him. When we look, at, at, when we look through Jesus at the feast, we understand that all the feasts we're pointing towards Him. Without Jesus, the purpose of the law and the purpose of the feasts are fuzzy and unclear, and those who are looking upon them don't even know the difference. But if they looked in faith upon Jesus, they would clearly see Jesus is the one 
who tabernacled among them. If they looked in faith upon Jesus, they would see that Jesus is the water that came from the rock to satisfy thirst. They would see that Jesus is the light of the world who reveals the glory of God. If it's so clear, then why doesn't everyone see Him? I mean, those of us who are sitting here, if you're in Christ, seems crystal clear to all of us, doesn't it? We see the Old Testament, the New Testament, and promises made and promises kept and how Jesus is the turning point of all human history. I mean, it makes sense to us. Well, why is it so clear to all of us who are in Christ? And how can it be so unclear to everyone else? It's because you're looking through your corrective lenses. Your eyes have been changed so that you can see Jesus. Your ears have been opened so that you can hear the teaching of Jesus. Now, without faith, we'll misjudge Jesus. We'll misjudge the timing of Jesus and we'll misjudge the teaching of Jesus. With faith, we'll judge Jesus rightly. Thirdly, I want you to see, without faith, not only will we misjudge the timing and teaching of Jesus, but we'll also... And this is the most important. We will misjudge the transformation brought about by Jesus. To the crowd, Jesus appears to be a lunatic, doesn't He? Jesus condemns the crowd. They're lawbreakers. In fact, He tells them that you're desiring to kill Me. Did you notice that there in this passage? Verse 19, why do you seek to kill Me? And how does the crowd respond? You have a demon. They're they're gaslighting Jesus. That's what they're doing. They're trying to make Jesus think that He's crazy. You have a demon, they tell Him. Who is seeking to kill you? No one's seeking to kill you. Interestingly enough, just look at verse 25. And we'll be looking at this passage next week. But look at what some of the people in Jerusalem say. Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? Gotta love the irony here, right? All of you are seeking to kill Jesus. You're crazy. No one here is seeking to kill you. And then the very crowds in Jerusalem say, Hey, isn't that the guy we're all trying to kill? Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Jesus is referring to his healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda. That was the last time he was in Jerusalem. You remember the story. We heard, about, heard the teaching. There was a man who sat by the pool who was lame. Couldn't walk. Jesus walked up to him and it was on the Sabbath day and He told the man to be healed and He rose up and picked up His bed and walked. And the man was healed. Jesus is referring to that in verse 21. I did one work. The last time I was here, I did one work and all of you marveled at it, Jesus said. Jesus is going to do here is he's going to talk about, he's going to make an argument from lesser to greater. He's going to explain, he's going to justify his healing on the Sabbath day. Okay? They're so angry at Jesus. They marvel at the healing, but they're angry about Jesus because he violated their Sabbath laws. And here he's going to make an argument to explain, he's going to make his case from lesser 
to greater. Look here at verse 22. Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. So here's the, here's the conundrum Jewish people would be in. The, the rabbis would talk about this. On what day was a Jewish baby boy to be circumcised? On the eighth day. Well, that was part of the law. You have to circumcise a baby boy on the eighth day in order to keep and fulfill the law. But what would you do if the eighth day fell on the Sabbath day? Do you violate the Sabbath day? Or do you violate the law to circumcise on the eighth day? Now you're in a conundrum. You're in a pickle. So what would they do? And Jesus knew the custom of the day and He would say, you circumcise the baby on the eighth day so that you don't violate the Sabbath day. Look at verse 23. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? I'm not trying to be vulgar here. Here's the point of the teaching. Okay, Here's Jesus' argument. If you fulfill the law by making a member of a man right, how much more so when I heal a whole man's body? Doesn't it make sense that if you would circumcise and, and make a man's body whole or the way that it should be before God, wouldn't it make sense that on the Sabbath day also that I would heal a lame man so that his whole body would be well. Here's what they didn't understand. And Jesus tells them in verse 24, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. We still struggle with this today. We judge Jesus by appearances. We don't look upon Him with the eyes of faith. To the social justice warrior, Jesus appears to be a revolutionary. To the New Ager, Jesus appears to be another wise man. To the antinomian, Jesus appears to be a lawbreaker. To the legalist, Jesus appears to be a rule maker. To the self-help guru, Jesus appears to be a model for self-improvement. And on and on and on we could go. But to the one with faith, to the one who was lost and is now found, to the one who was spiritually dead and made spiritually alive, to the one who was blind and can now see, to, the, to that one, Jesus is the Christ. The Son of God. He is the one who transforms the spiritually lame and makes them able to walk. It won't make sense without faith. It will seem absurd. It will seem impossible. It will seem too good to be true. To some, it even seems like a fairy tale. Without faith, we will all misjudge Jesus. The transformation of the miracle, the healing of the pool, Bethesda, was just 
a sign that Jesus heals us spiritually and transforms our lives. Without faith, we will misjudge the transformation from Jesus. We'll misjudge His timing, His teaching, and the transformation that He gives. But with faith, we'll judge Jesus rightly. We will rest in His perfect timing, trust in His teaching, and rejoice in the transformation He brings. Amen? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You that You still miraculously reach out and make the lame to walk. For each and every one of us are like that man at the pool, unable to save ourselves, unable to help ourselves, and yet by Your grace and mercy You find us. You give us the gift of faith. We ask now that You would grant to us that faith. That we might always judge You rightly with the eyes of faith and with the ears of faith. That we would trust in Your timing. That we would look, listen rightly to Your teaching. And that we would look rightly upon the transformation that You bring. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.